Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On March 31st, 1995, two women entered a ground floor room at a Days Inn motel near Interstate 35 in an industrial part of Corpus Christi, Texas. Just before noon, a shot rang out, and one of the women was seen running through the motel courtyard around the pool to the lobby. She burst in through the front door of the lobby and with a shaking voice pleaded with the front desk clerk to lock the door. Collapsing to the floor, she said her final words, Yolanda Saldivar in room 158. The woman was a Grammy-winning Mexican-American singer who was on the verge of becoming an international superstar. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on this episode of History of the 90s, the life and tragic death of a Latina icon whose life was sadly cut short. We will try to understand why this all-American kid raised in Texas is still a source of inspiration and hope for the Latinx community. A woman whose charm, talent, and legend loomed so large, she's only known by one name, Selena. It's hard to overstate the impact Selena's death had and still has on those who adored her. 25 years later, her legacy is as strong or maybe even stronger than ever. If you weren't a Selena fan before she died, you might have gotten to know her story because of the 1997 movie starring an up-and-coming Jennifer Lopez. But depending where you live, you might not be as familiar with this famous Tejano singer. Selena Quintanilla grew up in Southeast Texas in a Mexican-American family passionate about music. Her dad, Abraham, had some regional success in the 60s in his own group called Los Dinos, or the Dinosaurs. When Selena was about six, he noticed his daughter's natural singing ability, and he put together a band with Selena's sister Suzette on drums and her brother A.B. on bass guitar. This next generation of performers would also be called Los Dinos. Selena had that rare combination that all singers dream of, perfect pitch and perfect timing. And while her siblings had no musical training, they soon learned enough to hold their own. Los Dinos performed first at the family restaurant and then hit the road touring in a refurbished maroon-colored bus that they called Big Bertha. They ate on the bus and often slept there too, even though it was basically a disaster on wheels. No power steering, no heating, no air conditioning, no running water, no electricity, and no bathroom. The Quintanilla family traveled around the state of Texas playing Tejano music. Now, you might be wondering, just what is Tejano music? Well, first of all, for those who don't know, Tejano is a term used to describe a Texan of Mexican descent. Tejano music originated in communities on the Mexican-Texan border. And according to Deborah Paredes, a professor of ethnic studies at Columbia University, the music is a blend of traditional folk and pop music. 
And it's a music that, um, you know, it's meant to dance to, it's meant to, you know, drink to and sing to. Um, Tejano music, like jazz, is a kind, is a musical form that's sort of, you know, indigenous to the United States, right? It kind of came out of, of a working, you know, a, a community of color in the United States, in this case, Tejanos. And the music itself is very much influenced, as you might imagine, by the kind of colonial settlement of Texas. You know, so there's like German-based accordions coming up against horns that can be sort of influenced by doo-wop and Mexican rancheras, the Mexican forms as well. So there's uh, a really a kind of uh, a range of influences even within the music. In the 80s and 90s, young Tejano bands wore sequins, cowboy boots, and 10-gallon hats as they played their fun, upbeat music. Ironically, Selena had grown up speaking English and didn't speak Spanish very well. So her dad had to teach her to sing the Tejano songs by reading the lyrics phonetically and explaining what they meant word for word. Selena and Los Dinos performed everywhere they could. Parties, weddings, carnivals, quinceañeras, cantinas, and nightclubs. As they gathered momentum, Selena dropped out of junior high and enrolled in correspondence courses just to keep up with the band's unrelenting schedule. By 1983, Los Dinos were getting enough attention that they were asked to appear on a popular Spanish-language television show in South Texas. The Johnny Canales show was broadcast in 23 countries. He was basically considered the Dick Clark of the Latin music scene in the U.S. So this performance took Selena and her siblings to the next level. They were on their way to becoming one of the most popular Tejano groups in the country. In 1987, at the age of 16, Selena won her first Tejano Music Award for Entertainer of the Year. She would go on to win this award for the next eight straight years in a row. Then two years later, in 1989, Selena got her big break. She was signed as a solo artist by EMI's Latin record label and soon became the focus of EMI producer Jose Bejar, who saw in Selena the next Gloria Stefan. By now, Selena was 18 years old, and she had grown into an incredible performer. Her voice was beautifully textured, her stage presence was dazzling, and with a wide, red-lipped smile and sparkling stage outfits that accentuated her curves, she was stunning to look at. Selena's breakthrough album came in 1992 with the record Entre a Mi Mundo, Enter My World. It reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Regional Mexican Albums chart and stayed there for 19 weeks. One of its singles, Como La Flor, Like the Flower, became an instant classic, and it quickly became one of Selena's signature songs. It was inspired by the illuminated flower decorations that are used to decorate Mexican dance halls and compares love to a flower which needs love and care. Selena had been winning hearts in Texas for several years at this point, and now she was about to steal the heart of the world. Offstage was no different. Selena had a lot going on in her personal life, too. In April 1992, at the age of 20, she married her bad boy guitarist, Chris Perez, in a secret ceremony after just three months of dating. The pair eloped because Selena's father initially forbid her to have a relationship with Chris. 
Abraham didn't like his hard rock image and worried he might be bad for her career. Selena was strong-willed, though, and she didn't listen. Legend has it that she barged into Chris's hotel room and demanded they get married. The pair snuck off and tied the knot that same day. It wasn't a secret for long, though. Of course, Abraham found out, and realizing there was no chance he was going to get in the middle of this relationship and end it, he soon gave his blessing. And the newlyweds moved into a house in Corpus Christi, right next door to mom and dad. A year later, in 1993, she released the Selena Live album, which cemented her reign as the queen of Tejano music. It went double platinum, selling more than 2 million copies. And more importantly, it won a Grammy for Best Mexican-American Album. This was the first time that a female Tejano singer had won in the category. Selena took to the podium at the 1994 Grammys looking beautiful, dressed in a sparkling white dress with her hair swept up high on her head. Um, I'd like to thank the company Capitaline My Latin, Jose Barrar, uh, for making tonight possible and having faith in us, putting faith in us four years ago. I'd also like to thank uh, my band, Bozinos, my father, Abraham, my brother, who's a producer of my music, and also my sister. Thank you for all the support. And I'd also like to thank all the My Latin family. Thank you for having faith in me. I love you. Thank you. Selena was now Tejano's biggest star, and she seemed to be carrying the entire genre on her shoulders, helping to put it on the map. Yearly sales of Tejano music skyrocketed from the tens of thousands in the 80s to a $40 million industry by 1995. And this was a pretty big deal, because not only was Selena young, she was a female, and Tejano music had long been a male-dominated genre. There were women who were certainly integral to it, Lydia Mendoza and some others, but it was overwhelmingly male and masculinist genre. And so Selena coming along and making these interventions and bringing in and infusing Tejano music with other influences like American pop and uh, and Caribbean rhythms was a really important intervention in the genre itself and helped kind of break open the genre in really important ways. For Selena, the biggest stumbling block was her trouble with speaking Spanish. Although she was hugely popular in Mexico, the idea of giving interviews while on tour made her extremely nervous. So she began working with a tutor. The first time she toured in Mexico, she addressed the issue head on. In an interview with Mexican media, she said, I feel very proud to be Mexican. I didn't have the opportunity to learn Spanish when I was a girl, but it's never too late to get in touch with your roots. This was the Selena that audiences adored. A disarming girl next door who was pretty candid about the challenges of straddling both her Mexican and American identities. Professor Paradas, who wrote a book called Selena Dad, which looks at the ways Selena has been memorialized, says fans loved her authenticity sort of the girl who still lived in her neighborhood and even though she was famous and who still ate at Whataburger, which is a kind of chain, um, you know, fast food chain down in the southwestern United States, who still liked to, you know, eat pizza from, you know, Pizza Hut, very much was a, a kind of girl you knew from the neighborhood and simultaneously represented aspirations beyond that 
for many communities and, you know, still represented a kind of sense of glamour without forsaking what people might think like her roots. Selena's success continued to grow. Her next album in 1994, Amor Prohibido, Forbidden Love, spawned four number one Latin singles. That included the title track, which was written by the singer's brother, A.B., and was inspired by the true story of their grandparents, who, despite their class differences, fell in love and got married, defying society as well as family. The other big hit out of that album was Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb. It is still considered one of Selena's greatest hits and was especially liked by kids. It apparently came out of some improvising that Selena did at a rehearsal, As the band played a cumbia beat that changed to a reggae beat, she started singing and making up lyrics. The song is about a young girl's unrequited love for a boy, and the title refers to the sound of her beating heart as she sees him walking by. These songs were washed with emotions that ran deep and swept the listener into feeling whatever she was feeling. On the back of these hits, she became the third highest earning Latino performer in the U.S. and began taking on all kinds of side projects. You might not remember this, but Selena played a small part in the Johnny Depp movie Don Juan DeMarco. She sang her heart out as a mariachi singer in a minute-long scene in the film, which included Marlon Brando as well. She also became a spokesperson for Agree Shampoo. AT&T, and Southwestern Bell. And early on, she signed a big promotional deal with Coca-Cola, which was looking to market specifically to the Latinx community. They even released a special commemorative Selena Coke bottle to celebrate her five-year anniversary with the company in 1994. As her star continued to rise, she set her sights on something new. Selena had always dreamt of getting into the fashion industry. She designed most of her stage outfits and sewed on beads and sequins to plain bustiers and bras. This became a bit of a signature look for her. So in 1994, the singer opened a boutique and salon called Selena Etc. in Corpus Christi. It was so popular that a second location was opened in 1995 in San Antonio. She hired a young Hispanic designer by the name of Martin Gomez to create and oversee the production of clothes for the boutiques. But her long-range plans were to design the clothes herself and mass-produce them. To help manage the stores, Selena turned to someone she had trusted for years. The president of the Selena Fan Club. Yolanda Saldivar was a registered nurse working at two hospitals in Texas and was a huge fan of Tejano music. Her favorite singer, though, wasn't Selena. It was Shelley Larez, another very talented Tejano singer. After a concert in San Antonio, Yolanda approached the singer about starting a fan club. But she was denied by Lara's father, who would only approve of family members working with the singer. That's when Yolanda was convinced by her friends to give Selena a chance. She attended a concert in 1990 by the Queen of Tex-Mex in San Antonio and became an instant superfan. Abraham, Selena's dad, 
said that he received about 15 messages on his answering machine from Yolanda after that concert. She convinced him that a fan club was a good way to promote the star's career by tapping into her growing legion of fans. He finally relented, and Yolanda was hired as the club's first president. Selena performed three times at the Houston Astrodome. In 1993, 1994, and 1995, each time drawing over 60,000 fans. Her final show on February 26, 1995, is captured in the iconic opening scene of the Selena movie. In the movie, released years later, Jennifer Lopez is a stunning double for Selena in a glittering purple jumpsuit. The outfit was designed by Selena and would go on to be an iconic look for the singer. At that concert in 1995, she opened the unforgettable performance with a seven-minute medley of disco songs in English, and then she launched into her Tejano hits. Alternating between cumbia twirls and Paula Abdul and Janet Jackson-style dance moves. Selena was on top of the world and seemed unstoppable. But sadly, just over a month later, it would all come to a tragic end. Trouble started brewing with Yolanda when Selena's father, Abraham, was told about irregularities in the administration of the fan club. Fans wrote letters to him complaining that they had sent in checks for $22 in return for promotional materials about Selena, but the materials never arrived. This would have been the direct responsibility of 34-year-old Yolanda Saldivar. After reviewing some records, Abraham was convinced that Yolanda had stolen approximately $30,000 from the fan club and the boutiques. On March 9, 1995, Abraham called Yolanda to meet with him, Selena, and her sister Suzette at the family's recording studio. There, he confronted Yolanda, who denied any wrongdoing. Suzette wasn't convinced, though, and pointed right in her face and called her a liar. Though it got kind of heated, the family didn't fire Yolanda on the spot. They were waiting to get more documents related to the fan club. Things would take a sinister turn just four days later, when on March 13th, Yolanda went to a local gun shop and paid $230 for a 38 caliber revolver. She returned the gun the next day, but came back on March 26th and bought it a second time. Meantime, Selena told her sister that she now had enough evidence to fire Yolanda. What happened next were a series of bizarre and tragic events. On March 31st, Selena agreed to meet with the close and trusted friend that had betrayed her. She wanted to get financial records that would prove the money had been stolen, documents that Yolanda had refused to give her. They met at a Days Inn motel in Corpus Christi, less than a mile away from the studio where Selena recorded her music. Yolanda had checked into room 158 the day before using a Selena Boutique American Express card. Here's where it gets bizarre. Yolanda once again delayed the handover by claiming she had been raped in Mexico. 
So Selena drove her to a local hospital where doctors found no evidence of rape. They then returned to the motel, where Selena again demanded the financial papers. We have no way of knowing exactly what happened next. There were no other witnesses when Selena entered room 158 at the Days Inn. And the hotel was not outfitted with cameras to record the comings and goings of its guests. But just before noon, a loud boom echoed through the motel. Selena was then seen running from the room, screaming for help. A calm-looking woman with a gun followed her into the corridor at first and then turned around and went back inside the room. Selena managed to stagger into the motel lobby where she collapsed from a bullet wound, uttering Yolanda's name as her last words. By the time police arrived, Yolanda had barricaded herself inside her red pickup truck in the motel parking lot. We are standing by live in Corpus Christi, right across the street from the Days Inn where this shooting did occur earlier today. If you look behind me, you can see the tail end of a red pickup truck. This is also where police officers and SWAT team members are still trying to negotiate with the alleged killer. Police negotiated with her for nine solid hours as she held a gun to her head, threatening to kill herself. Hundreds of people stood across the street from the parking lot in light rain watching the drama unfold. They used binoculars to watch Yolanda crying and wringing her hands behind the tinted windows of her truck. Finally, around 9.30 that night, Yolanda put down her gun and surrendered to police. Meantime, minutes after the shooting, ambulances raced to the Days Inn and rushed Selena to Memorial Medical Center just a quick drive away. But shortly after she arrived, Dr. Lewis Elkins, a cardiac surgeon, pronounced her dead from a single gunshot wound to the back. Again, recapping our top story, Tejano recording star and South Texan Selena Quintanilla was shot and killed in Corpus Christi today. The person who apparently shot her was arrested a short time ago. Selena, born in 1971, would have been 24 in just two weeks. The world was stunned by Selena's death. A Dallas Tejano radio program director told a newspaper at the time that it was the equivalent of Elvis dying. Radio stations were besieged by calls from fans who could not accept the news. Others rushed to local record stores to buy up any and all Selena merchandise they could find. Fans and well-wishers placed wreaths and crosses outside her home in Corpus Christi. Yellow ribbons were tied to car grills, antennas, trees, and fences throughout her neighborhood. Candlelight vigils were held in cities around Texas where shocked fans cried and blasted Selena's music. The full impact of her death became clear when a public visitation was held two days later on Sunday, April 2nd. More than 30,000 mourners weeping and clutching photos of the singer filed past her black coffin at a Corpus Christi Convention Center. The casket was surrounded by scores of long-stem white roses that were imported from Holland. They came from as far away as San Francisco, Miami, and Mexico City, making a pilgrimage to the entertainer's hometown to stand in line from well before dawn until late in the evening for a chance to say goodbye to a young woman they fell in love with because of her authenticity, charm, 
and talent. Initially, Selena's coffin was closed, but as conspiracy theories swirled around that the singer wasn't actually dead, the family decided to open up the casket for the final hour of the visitation service. A private funeral was held the next day. Helicopters carrying paparazzi hovered overhead as the singer was laid to rest at the Seaside Memorial Cemetery near Corpus Christi Bay. Wind whipped against the burial tent as 300 friends, relatives, and music industry people gathered around the gravesite for the hour-long burial. Nearly 8,000 white roses were placed on top of her grave. Professor Paredes has a theory on why Selena's death had such a massive impact on her fans. She says the 90s, much like today, were turbulent times for the American Latinx community. Reforms to immigration and welfare, along with NAFTA, and English-only propositions in California and Texas were major concerns for the community. In that moment, her death provides not just an opportunity to mourn her specifically, but to really mourn all of the tragedies that were affecting Latino lives, to also create a space for our aspirations because of course she died young she was someone who was about to really hit it even more big across the global stage and you know young deaths you know of our of our people of our children you know happen unfortunately disproportionately often to communities of color and so she provided a kind of a place to, to mourn that, but to also recognize, like, right, if I worshiping her or remembering her is a way for me to aspire to my own dreams. In the days that followed Selena's death, there were tributes across all forms of media, especially in Texas. TV stations ran special features and radio stations played her music, in some cases, nonstop around the clock. But there was one radio show that enraged Selena fans. The day of her funeral, Howard Stern played the sound of gunshots over her music and mocked fans in a Hispanic accent. He said, Spanish people have the worst taste in music. This music does absolutely nothing for me. Alvin and the Chipmunks have more soul. This, not surprisingly, infuriated Hispanic communities across the country, and many called for a boycott of radio stations that aired his syndicated show. A justice of the peace even issued an arrest warrant for disorderly conduct in Stern's name in Texas. Eloy Cano said he did it for the Tejano fans. The following week, Stern apologized on air in Spanish, saying his comments were made in satire and not intended to hurt Selena's fans, family, and friends. The warrant remained in place for a full year, and police could have arrested Stern if he'd set foot in Texas during that time. Newspapers ran special Selena editions as well, and they sold out almost instantly. And People magazine issued a split cover for the first time in its history. Half of the country that, you know, got on on the cover got you know, a picture of the cast of Friends, and the other half of the country, primarily the Southwest, got uh, a picture of Selena and a kind of tribute to Selena. And that issue, the Selena issue, sold out immediately. So People Magazine ran a couple of more um, uh, prints, and those sold out as well. And so People Magazine, the editor said, you know, the, the, the head of People Magazine said, wow, you know, look at that. There's, there's Latinos out there and they buy stuff. So why don't we 
do something about that. And so in response to that issue, they launched People in Espanol. And then Newsweek in Espanol happened after that. So Selena's death is the very thing that launched, that helped kind of launch a market, right, for Latinos, for better and for worse. As millions were mourning the loss of Selena, some Americans and Canadians had no idea who she even was. At the time, only a few Latinx performers had gone mainstream in North America. Menudo, Julio Iglesias, Los Lobos, Louis Miguel, and Gloria Stefan. Selena was poised to be the next star. Before she died, she was working on her first English-language album. Four months after the shooting, in July 1995, the album called Dreaming of You was released and debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. That was the first for a Latina artist and proved her reach across both English and Latin audiences. The album sold over 200,000 copies on the first day of release, and sales would eventually top six million and it remains the number one selling Latin album in America to this day. Selena was a genre-busting trailblazer in the 90s and remains so today. Her music has been the soundtrack for generations and has influenced musicians young and old. Puerto Rican rapper Bad Bunny has listed Selena as his icon and many Latina artists have performed her music including Gloria Estefan, Becky G, and Leslie Grace. As for the woman who killed Selena, Yolanda Saldivar, well, her trial took place in October 1995, six and a half months after the shooting. During the trial, her defense lawyer claimed that she planned to kill herself that day, and as she pulled the gun out, it accidentally went off and shot the singer. He also provided a different version of the events leading up to Selena's death. Lawyer Douglas Tinker said that Abraham Quintanilla had been harassing his client and she bought the revolver to protect herself from increasing confrontations with the singer's father. He described Abraham as an overbearing stage dad who pulled his daughter out of school so he could live vicariously through her music career. A tape that was made during the nine-hour police standoff after the shooting was played in court. On it, a hysterical Yolanda blames the shooting on Abraham, who she said raped and sexually abused her and threatened to kill her family. She said constant intimidation by Abraham forced her to shoot the only friend she ever had. Abraham denied the allegations when he was called to testify. In the end, the jury did not believe her version of events, and on October 23, 1995, Yolanda Saldivar was found guilty of murdering Selena Quintanilla Perez. She was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole until March 30, 2025. She is currently an inmate at the Mountain View Unit in Gatesville, Texas. Two years after the singer's death, her life was immortalized in a movie called Selena, starring a young Jennifer Lopez in her breakout role. Lopez was paid a million dollars for her performance, which at the time made her the highest paid Latina actress in Hollywood history. The movie, which was made in association with Selena's family, 
was a sweet coming-of-age story that ends with only a brief mention of the murder. The focus is on her rise to fame. Selena, the movie, opened at number two at the box office, pulling in $11.6 million in its first weekend. And the film has gone on to become one of the highest-grossing music biopics of all time. Selena was already a cultural icon at the time of her death, but this movie, well, it cemented her legacy, and it meant that girls who weren't even born when the singer died grew up watching the movie and wanting to be like her. It absolutely is kind of canonical in within many Latino communities, you know, kind of quotes from the movie always kind of emerge, you know, as a kind of a code amongst Latinos. Like, oh, yes, we know, we know what's, we, we know each other because we know anything for Selena's, you know, the, the Cholo saying that wonderful line. Are you kidding me, man? This bumper, this, this bumper is going to go on the wall of my garage, carnal. I'm going to put a little sign under it. It's going to say, this bumper was pulled off by the bus. Of Salinas. <laughs> I mean, anything for Salinas. Today, the legacy of Selena is even stronger. Tributes to the singer didn't end in the 90s. They've continued for the past 25 years, and they actually seem to be on the rise recently. For example, in 2016, MAC Cosmetics launched a Selena-inspired line of makeup. And how that came about is a pretty cool story. Patty Rodriguez, who calls herself a Selena superfan, first sent Mac a casual email in 2013 suggesting the idea. She sent a couple more emails after the first one, pointing out that Latina consumers buy three times as much makeup as other consumers, and she waited to hear back. Mac didn't respond, so Rodriguez, who incidentally is a producer and sometimes co-host on the Ryan Seacrest radio show, started a Change.org petition, which quickly gathered over 40,000 signatures. Finally, Mac relented, and they released a limited-edition Selena makeup line. The 18-piece collection, which featured lip gloss called Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb, sold out within the first five hours online. And some stores sold out in less than an hour. A second line is being released in April 2020 to mark the 25th anniversary of the singer's death. Rodriguez told Cosmo magazine in 2015 that Selena is important to her because she represents all things that Latinas recognize about themselves. She said, We are the big lips, the thick hair, curves, so many different skin colors, and we're proud of all of that. In 2017, Selena was honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and Los Angeles officials declared November 3rd, Selena Day. Nearly 5,000 fans turned out for the unveiling of the star that was placed in front of the Capitol Records building. That's the largest ever crowd for a Walk of Fame ceremony. Selena's family and her husband attended the ceremony, along with actress Eva Longoria, who said the singer had been a big influence on her career and identity. She said, Growing up, there was not a reflection of me anywhere. It was like someone like me didn't exist in American mainstream. This star isn't just for Selena, but for all Latinas. There's also a cute Instagram account that pays tribute to Selena in a fun way. 
two friends from Portland are behind the account called Traveling Selena. And it features pictures of a Selena doll in handmade replica outfits in different places around the world. The doll has been photographed in tons of places, anywhere from Buckingham Palace to the Great Barrier Reef to Mexico City. It's adorable. You should go check it out. Since Selena's death, there has been an outpouring of memorial tributes and public expressions of grief in Texas and other parts of the U.S. The Latina superstar has been mourned in documentaries, magazines, websites, monuments, biographies, murals, lookalike contests, musicals, and drag shows. And in Corpus Christi, her family runs the Selena Museum, which features a ton of cool memorabilia, including her little red Porsche convertible that she famously drove all around her hometown before her death. There have been some controversial tributes, too. Most notably, a book called Selena's Secret, which was written by Latin American TV journalist Maria Celeste Arreras in 1997. The book was the basis of a TV series on Telemundo, and it made some pretty shocking claims. It said that Selena was having an affair with a prominent Mexican plastic surgeon, and she was planning to leave her husband, Chris. Herreras re-released the book in 2015 on the 20-year anniversary of Selena's death. And at the time, she stated she feels that the book has been validated in the years since it was first published. In 2012, Dr. Ricardo Martinez told Univision that he had, in fact, been having a relationship with Selena. The book also claims that Selena was tired of her controlling father and raised questions about why Selena apparently brought a packed suitcase and her passport to her meeting with Yolanda Saldivar at the Days Inn Motel. The Quintanilla family expressed disapproval of the book and said it was demeaning to Selena. In 2012, Selena's husband, Chris, released a book of his own about his marriage to the Tejano star called To Selena With Love. He had plans to develop a movie based on the book, but Abraham Quintanilla launched a lawsuit claiming Chris was violating an estate agreement that he signed after her death. After three years of legal wrangling, the lawsuit was dropped following a confidential agreement between the two sides. Shortly after that, it was announced that Selena's family would be producing a series with Netflix about the singer's life. It's expected to be released in 2020, so stay tuned for that. Professor Paredes believes that part of the reason that Selena remains so popular with the Latinx community is because there really hasn't been anyone to replace her. She remains the best-selling female Latin music artist of all times. But Paredes says she does think about what might have happened if Selena had not died so young. You know, I, I sometimes say Selena died before she was forced to dye her hair. And I think that there's something about 
the way that, you know, she stayed kind of unapologetically brown in her makeup. She stayed, you know, her hair stayed, you know, jet black. Her body stayed kind of a curvaceous in a way that was very affirming for women, um, you know, like her, you know, many women in my own family who have bodies that don't adhere to kind of a norm for mainstream ideas of, of feminine glamour. And so all of those things meant that she also, that, that reinforced her authenticity kind of persona or credibility. And I think that it was refreshing to see, although because she died young, it, it also preserves her in that moment before she might have had to make concessions, right, for the industry. Not only did Selena die before she was forced to conform, she died before having a chance to live up to her full potential. Like so many other young musicians and actors before her, she remains frozen in that space where hope and promise still exist. Thanks for joining me on this look back at the amazing life and tragic death of Selena. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to my guest, Professor Deborah Paredes, author of Selena Dad, Selena, Latinos, and the Performance of Memory. We'll also include links to some of Selena's biggest hits. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, be sure to go back and check out some of our older episodes. And I would love to hear from you if you have any great show ideas for me. Just drop me a line or check me out on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. My email is 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Gonzora, and Selena superfan, Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.